This morning we're taking a break from uh, Revelation. I'm going to be looking at Genesis chapter 22. And um, maybe it's up in the air right now. Next week is September 11th, and we might be asking and seeking to answer the question, where was God on 9-11? And so that's up in the air, and you can pray whether or not uh, I or the session would like me to speak about that. But right now we're looking at Genesis Chapter 22, verses 1 through 18, I've entitled the message, and hopefully you understand the, I'm not trying to be irreverent, but hopefully it'll become clear in the message, the triune God, who does he think he is? I've entitled this message. Genesis 22, 1 through 18, hear now the word of God. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide as it is to this day. In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, and you have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. 
Father in heaven, we do pray that even as we engage in our understanding of this very challenging account, that we would recognize that by grace through faith we have become descendants, that we are among those of the stars or of the sand on the seashore. We are part of that promise, and we do thank you for that. And we do pray, Father, though, as we, as we look at this, we would understand the challenge that Abraham was met with, with these words, that we would understand, Father, your power, your grace, your wisdom, that we would ever rely upon you. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I was enjoying a uh, fictional drama revolving around the boundaries a parent might be willing to push in their love for, the, for a child, for their child. Now, as a parent and as a husband, there may not be anything in my life where I am more vulnerable in terms of coming to that place where I may cross boundaries than the issue of the welfare of my wife and children. I'm just admitting that would be a place where I could find myself being weak if, if they're threatened, if I feel like something is going to go wrong with them. So I was very engaged in this drama to see where it was going to go. Then a scene really hit me when they chose to use a 17-year-old girl who was a parochial school student, like a religious school, a Roman Catholic school, to be, in this story, the voice of reason. She had already been questioning her faith in an earlier scene, so her parents, being mafia members and feeling maybe unqualified to offer an apologetic for the existence of God, enlisted an old priest to come to the house and straighten her out. Now, in the midst of his failing miserably to accomplish this, the girl storms out of the room and angrily, contemptuously shares a Bible story with her father that she had just learned the day before at school. The story was the story of Abraham and Isaac. I was listening very attentively at this point. And she wasn't altogether inaccurate in her account of the story. Dad, you realize what this story consists of? He is called to kill his own son. And he's not even honest with his own son about what he's going to do to him. And the main point of this entire enterprise is to simply prove to God that he loves him. Now, her conclusion in this, her takeaway from this story, was that God was a deranged despot whom she hated. Now, keep in mind, she didn't say she didn't believe in him. She hated him. Now, it's not too difficult, I think, to understand how a secular audience 
would feel the same contempt for such a God as this. I mean, who does he think he is requiring such a hideous task? I mean, I have to say, you know, Abraham was merely a man, a flesh and blood man. And you would have to almost be inhuman to read a story like this dispassionately, as if this was not a struggle for Abraham as a person. He wasn't Superman. He was a man. Even Matthew Henry, the 17th century Presbyterian theologian, asked the question, must the father of the faithful be the monster of all fathers? Now, adding to the difficulty, we're going to even make it harder. Adding to this, the difficulty was the randomness of the command. God offers no explanation to Abraham as to why he should do this. No rationale. Isaac had committed no crime. Isaac had not engaged in idolatry. Unlike other sons in Scripture, Nadab and Abihu, Phinehas and Hophni, and others, where there is an ample record of contempt for God and man, nothing like that is said of Isaac. He wasn't even going to die as a martyr, defending his faith. There's nothing evidently utilitarian about this whole event. It's like the fruit in the garden. I'm just saying, don't touch it. Don't eat it. Now, hopefully we all would recognize that a shallow reading of this would leave us with a tremendous, what in the world? Even still, even with kind of an understanding of the way the world might view this, it struck me in this scene with the great ease with which the writers scripted blasphemy from the mouth of this teen. With a defiant nobility, she expresses her hatred for the God of Scripture. And keep in mind, all of this was framed in such a way as to present her as the wisest, bravest, and most virtuous person in the room. We we were to look at her and go, there is the person who's the top-notch character in the scene. One could almost feel the popular atheist Richard Dawkins rendering his applause from the shadows for she all but quoted him directly in his book, The God Delusion. And don't underestimate the force of these neo-atheists. I mean, they're all over the place. Everybody's reading them. And she almost quotes him directly. In his book, he wrote this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. 
Now, keep in mind, Dawkins is not grabbing these attributes out of thin air. He has scriptural references at some generally twisted level to justify all of these indictments against the God of Scripture. And at some level, if God were not God, these accusations would have merit. But when what Dawkins does not recognize, what this girl, you know, obviously playing a part, did not recognize, what the world refuses to recognize, and even what many Christians, if not all of us at some level, simply do not recognize, is the true sovereign godhood of God. We can be so fickle and selective when it comes to our acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God in terms of his control of history. Sometimes we like it, and sometimes we don't. We're all, we're all quite comfortable celebrating his sovereignty in bringing us and others into the world. We're all about thanking God for the birth of a child. It's such a joyous occasion. But a similar disposition is elusive when it comes to his taking us out of the world. But friends, God determines both of those days. He determined the day that we would show up, and he determines the day that we leave and the means by which we leave this world. He even calls our exit from this world something precious in his sight. Hard things for us to mouth in the context of the loss of a loved one. You see, friends, what makes this a difficult story, why this is hard for us, is because when it gets right down to it, we have a truncated understanding of the God who gives the command. Add to that the very short-term approach we tend to have regarding the existence of our souls, the existence of our being. 3,853 years have passed since this event took place. And I don't think... I'm taking, you know, an exegetical risk to suggest that Abraham and Isaac's current view right now of what happened on Mount Moriah 4,000 years ago was or is that it was well worth it. I think if we could interview them right now about what happened 4,000 years ago, what do you think of that? How do you feel about what God did and that command? There would be a resounding, it was well worth it. Let us also note that in this entire heart-wrenching test of Abraham's faith, he never once questioned God's divine right to give the order. I mean, you know, it's funny, we... We say things to people like, who do you think you are? I mean, I entitled this, who does he think he is? We say, who do you think you are? And we used to follow that up with God. Who do you think you are? God? Because there was something 
about our understanding of God that told us that if, in fact, God did this, he would have a perfect right to. Abraham doesn't go that. He doesn't say, what's the deal? Who do you think you are? This type of astonishing display of faithfulness is something we see peppered throughout Scripture. I mean, one of my favorite verses, just in terms of faithfulness, we find in Job 13, 15, while while Job is going through all the things that he's going through, and he just resigns, right, to the fact, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. What manner of faith would produce these words from Paul where he wrote, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yet I'm going to tell you, the world evaluates such a disposition as misguided. They think it's misguided. And their lack of willingness to acknowledge the godhood of God, friends, does not leave the world in a state of neutrality but in a state, as I think this drama that I was watching clearly demonstrates, a state of increasing rebellion and hostility. It's not as if we're going to mutually coexist. No, it is the nature of man to take rank against the Lord, not to remain neutral. I mean, when you study the Gospels, the last thing on earth you see in terms of, a people, of people's response to Jesus is a disposition of neutrality. They either loved him or hated him. Nobody was neutral. Now, I, I feel like I need to, and I'm just going to briefly present this because it's this view is in our camp of Reformed circles, and you can ask me more about it during the question and answer time, but I think it is with great naivete that a view of the world has gotten legs within reform circles where it takes the world as to somehow offer a common kingdom where God rules in this common kingdom equitably, justly, fairly, based upon the fact that all men have access to general revelation. They all, they all can see the heavens and know there's a God this view that because we're made in the image of God, fallen, even fallen man will rule equitably. And because of this, Christians should not worry too much about what's going on in the world. God's got his left hand, is the term that is used. He's, the church is in his right hand, but his left hand is in the world. And just let, kind of let them rule, because they will in fact rule equitably. I would argue that scripture and history indicate quite the opposite. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdoms of the world do not form a fraternity, but a battlefield. I think R.J. Rushduni hit it on the head when he said, the city of God and the city of man, referring all the way back to Augustine and how the many people in Rome thought Rome was the kingdom of God. A lot of people in America have thought America was the kingdom of God. But he makes this argument, the city of God and the city of man, between these two forces, there is unremitting warfare. 
speaking of a godly wisdom, a wisdom from above, a wisdom that we learn later in the New Testament found in Christ, the Proverbs teach this. Proverbs 8, 35 and 36. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. I mean, that passage could be a passage we could spend a few weeks on. It is pregnant with application, I think, in terms of the current direction of the culture in which we live. But what's not found in that passage, or any other passage in Scripture, is an argument for neutrality with the world. The the verse doesn't say, all those who are indifferent toward me, all those who are neutral toward me. It's all those who hate me. And where do they end up? Loving death. I mean, there is a love affair with death in our culture, in case you haven't noticed. And it's getting more and more intimate, more and more accepted. Now, let me just say this. I don't highlight all of this to justify the Christian's engagement in unrelenting frustration or to find some comfort in the cozy nook of victimhood or hostility, you know, that we can all get together and go, yeah, the world's so lame, and just pat each other on the back because we figured out how lame the world is. I'm highlighting this very common theme in Scripture that we may ever be aware of our environment. We need to understand the world by which we are surrounded and that we may assertively, aggressively access the God-given tools for this type of warfare, not the least of which is the faith of Abraham. If, If we don't have, in some level, this faith that we see in Abraham, we're not going to have the ability to engage. We see this faith revealed in this chapter. And let me tell you something else. Like Abraham, we might expect that the refinement of our faith may very well be a painful project. A refined faith, according to Peter, is more precious than gold. And the method of refinement, Peter compares to that which happens in a furnace. So I want to take a moment here, because I'm not going to be able to get in deep in this passage. Take a moment to see if we can answer the anger of this 17-year-old. And but quite frankly, an entire generation, not only of young, but young and old. I saw this on the screen, but I've heard it personally, from young people. I've received letters and emails that express the same contempt that I saw in this drama. So this is not a rare thing. It's becoming more and more common. We live in a land where people have grown very comfortable expressing their hatred and contempt for the God of Scripture. But friends, it's, it's not merely an apologetic for the 22nd chapter of Genesis. I don't want to just get up here and kind of go, well, we've answered her problem. Recognizing this, I found this to be true. I'm, I'm guessing maybe you have as well. It's the most challenging messages that we read in the Bible. 
The messages in the Bible where we read and go, what in the world? How do I kind of embrace that? How do I, how do I apply that? Where, where do I go with this intellectually? The most challenging messages are the most stretching messages as well. Because let me tell you, if there's something wrong, if you're reading the Bible and you're going, this isn't working, something's wrong, I'll tell you right now unequivocally, something is wrong with you, not the scriptures. It is not the scriptures that need to be adjusted. It's we that need to be adjusted. So when we read this account and we go, I just, I just can't fathom it. I can't embrace it. I can't accept it. I won't serve a God who behaves that way. There's not a problem with God. There's a problem with us. So let's unpack this 4,000-year-old event. And I want us to arrive at the utter reasonableness of Abraham's response to the glorious faith-refining furnace to which God had called him. And again, I'm going to race through this. What's not readily apparent in this account is that there was more at stake here than a parent's loss of a child. God had made a promise that through Abraham's seed, salvation would come to the world. So the, the conundrum extended beyond God commanding Abraham to do something which at face value was apparently a conflict of God's own moral word. It also appeared to be in conflict with God's own plan. God had made a promise. Abraham didn't just have an emotional struggle. He had a theological struggle. God had made a promise. The promise of God, this covenant God had made with Abraham, was to proceed through Isaac. We read in Genesis 17, 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Hard to have offspring if you're dead. So on the table of sacrifice was not merely Abraham's son. It was Abraham's salvation. It was the salvation of his son. And it was the salvation of of the world, was on that altar. Calvin put it this way, for the great source of grief to him was not his own bereavement. I'm sure it included that, but that was Calvin's kind of going, there's something bigger at play here. Not that he was commanded to slay his only heir. That wasn't, that wasn't the biggest player in the game. The hope of future memorial, end of name, the glory and support of his family. That, those were not the main things, Calvin is saying. But that, in the person of this son, the whole salvation of the world seemed to be extinguished and to perish. I mean, this is the theme all the way starting in Genesis 12 up to what we're reading. God is going, go leave the land, go where I'm going to tell you to go, 
And through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And he, he, he would have them go outside, look at the stars. Can you count them? That's how many. The sand of the sea, can you count it? That's how many. And it's going to be through Isaac. And you know, Isaac is on the altar. God's plan didn't seem very efficient. Had God lost his way? You know, sometimes we don't get our directions right, right? We want to be going to Magic Mountain, but we end up at SeaWorld because we got on the wrong on-ramp, right? I mean, was God on the wrong? Did he get up on the wrong on-ramp? Or is he, what, what is going on here? You see, in God's preparation of Abraham to be the father of the faith, Abraham had to defer to the infinite wisdom of God over his own understanding of the way the plan of salvation was going to unfold. I mean, Abraham had already had a problem with this before, right, with, with Hagar. He's like, well, obviously, I'm going to kind of have to take matters into my own hands, and I think he learned a kind of a brutal lesson there. But at least at this point, he's kind of going, all right, it's your plan. I don't get it. If ever the word of the cross was foolishness to those who are perishing, it was here. But Abraham would not lean on his own understanding, his own very limited understanding, He would rather acknowledge God, and God would direct his path. God said, do this, and he's like, I don't get it. Sometimes the path God would have us on is very counterintuitive. But the plot thickens. You see, we are called to that same faith as sons and daughters of Abraham. I mean, Paul, and especially in Galatians, he's going, look at, you know, and in Hebrews, you need to have the faith like Abraham. So a natural question arises. A question I've heard, by the way, many times. Pastor Paul, what if God asked you to do such a task? Would you do it? I mean, I'm guessing some of you have heard that question. How could Abraham have possibly concluded that this was appropriate? I mean, are there not insane people to this day committing filicide, the idea of killing your own children? It happens a lot. I mean, it's a weird phenomenon. But this happens today, and it's followed by the testimony that God had called them to do it. And do we not universally agree that these people who are saying this have lost their minds? Well, it is precisely here that we see the value and safety of a closed canon. The scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the sole infallible message from God to us. Simply put, 
God no longer speaks to men the way he spoke to Abraham. He speaks to us through his word, the Holy Scriptures. Let me tell you, the Scriptures are sufficient to equip us in every way we need to be equipped. 2 Timothy 3.16, I think, makes that very clear that in his Scriptures we are thoroughly equipped. Modern day prophets and apostles, let me tell you right now, and I I don't shrink back from this. They are very, very dangerous. One keeps, there's a modern day apostle and prophet conference that I, keeps popping up on my feed that is very, very dangerous. Now, I will say they generally limit their activities to grifting the vulnerable and the elderly. But if we truly believe that they're prophetic, if we truly believe that they are speaking to them the way God was speaking to Abraham or Samuel or Nathan or Isaiah or the apostles, they could just as easily command our government to invade Canada the way Saul, by Samuel, by God through Samuel, told Saul to invade and eradicate the Amalekites. I get a little nervous when I see a president surrounded by a prophet. Invade Canada. God told me to tell you to invade Canada. Every man, woman, child, animal, dust. No. There was no question in the mind of Abraham regarding this divine revelation. He was certain, as Matthew Henry explains, he... Abraham was infallibly assured that it was indeed a command of God and not a delusion. Somebody says, would you do that if God told you to do it? The answer is God doesn't speak that way. And so that question simply falls flat. Nonetheless, God did command Abraham to do something unthinkable. So let's get back to the story. Let's leave aside the fact that God's not going to ask me to do that. That's not the way it works. Now, we can go ahead and speculate regarding the emotional hurricane in Abraham's heart. I mean, again, he was just a man. He was just a person. He'd waited a long time to have a son. But we don't speculate. We can't speculate. We needn't speculate regarding the immediacy of his submission. He rose up early in the morning. To what do we credit this unflinching obedience? I think the answer is twofold. One is a little bit speculative. The other, I think, is contained in the text. Why would he respond so immediately? Why would he not say, well, wait a minute. First are the former miracles Abraham had enjoyed. See, this was not his first rodeo. God had already spoken to Abraham a number of times. He'd even experienced this thing, this cutting of the covenant in Genesis 15, which was a remarkably fantastic event that took place. But even beyond that, understand this. God had already supernaturally brought life where there was no possibility of life in terms of Sarah. 
who at the age of 90, who was barren and was incapable of having a child because of the supernatural power of God, bore a child. That, I mean, let's not underestimate that event. The event seemed so absurd that what was Sarah's first response? Right, she laughed. Matter of fact, Isaac, the name, means he laughs. God had instilled a sense of confidence in Abraham based upon what he'd already done. Abraham knew that God could create life where there was no life. I guess, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying this is atheological. I mean, obviously, Abraham had a theology, but it revolved around God himself over the things of God. I mean, our, our theology, the things we know about God, all should serve to ameliorate, to, to lift up, to clarify God himself. If our theology is not bringing God higher in our thinking, I don't understand what kind of theology we have. So, so Abraham's lack of ability to figure out the plan of salvation didn't seem to be that big of a problem because he knew the God of salvation. He had, knew, he had known and experienced his great power. And secondly, and this is contained in the text, and I think it is related to the first one, Abraham was confident, not in his own righteousness, not in his own intellect, but he had confidence in the power of God. In the New Testament, we read a little bit further in terms of what was going on in the mind of Abraham. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And that means that, probably means that God told Abraham not to kill him. But the point here is that Abraham knew that God could raise the dead. Abraham, and I don't know, I don't know if you've felt this way, I feel this way quite often. Abraham might have been at the end of himself. You ever feel as you're trying to navigate through your difficulties that you've got, you've come to the end of yourself, you're like going, I've, I've, done all that I can do. I've thought all that I could think. I'm trying to find some, some emotional, intellectual respite. And I, it's just like there's a storm going on in my head and in my heart, and I just can't seem to find cool waters anywhere. You ever have that where you're just going, I got nothing else to offer. I've come to the end of myself. And I think we can, being finite creatures, come to the end of ourselves But there's no getting to the end of an almighty God who holds the keys to eternal life. God has the power and the right to begin and end our lives as he sees fit. And let me say something else. 
that there is no one who can, in the final and eternal analysis, make better choices than God. Well, let me just say, none of this works. If we view God as is so often, at least in our culture, you know, where the faith is presented as a, some kind of product, if we view God as some sort of cosmic life coach, if we view God as having, as his primary job description, my personal happiness, that, that what, what's really most important in terms of, you know, the cosmos is that I'm taken care of. That's, that's the main thing. The chief end of God is to take care of me. If we have that disposition, then none of this works. Our perception and estimation of God, as limited as this might be for finite, fallen creatures that we are, is that he as we learned in Revelation, is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We have to have in our, in our minds that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if we have that disposition, it all makes sense. And let me tell you something else. If you, if you substitute that for somebody else, if you say the chief end of man is to glorify fill-in-the-blank. But we tried that in the 20th century, and it was a bloodbath. If you've got somebody better than God to call the shots, I'd be really interested to know who that is. You know what's interesting about all of this? We're so eager, we're so ready to, 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 to hurl epithets at God because he is saying, I'm going to set you free to worship me. The, the chief thing for you is to worship me. But many people are willing to die for the truth. Many people are willing to die for that which is good. Many people are willing to die for that which is just. But we, we, we have such a small view of God, we don't realize that when the Bible says God is love, God is good, God is just, it's not saying that there's a library somewhere outside of God. He went into the library and found a book on justice and said, that's a pretty good idea. Maybe I'll be that. That goodness, justice, love, mercy, courage, and all of the divine attributes, all of the attributes, all of the, of the verities are an extension of the character and nature of God himself. It is not a greater thing to die for that which is just if we do not recognize that justice itself flows from the character and nature of God without whom there would be no such thing called justice. We need to elevate our thinking of God. He's not some member of the Greco-Roman pantheon sitting in Mount Olympus, fickle, trying to solve his own problems through the expense of people. He is the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And that's why I don't think it's terribly risky when I say today, if you were to ask Abraham and Isaac, was it worth it? They would say absolutely. And his call in our lives to trust him, to have faith in him, and to embrace with unfaithfulness 
unflinching conviction, the refining of that faith, as painful and as challenging as that may be, that call is supremely precious. One way or another, friends, we're all going to end up where Abraham must have been. All we have to offer, all of our ambitions, all of our aspirations, all of our skills, all of our senses, all of our endurance will be reduced to nothing. We won't be able to figure it out. And that refined faith becomes the sole instrument by which we access eternal hope found in Christ. It is precisely then and there that we see God not as one to be hated, but one to be worshipped. I have a good friend who's currently going through the unthinkable. And it's not entirely clear to me where he stands with God. I, I sought to encourage him with some words and some prayers and some words of scripture that I have found myself comforting. And, you know, he, he's doing everything he can to remedy the situation, when, which is not unfolding very well. And his response to me was that it means so much to lean on faith. I'm trying to figure out where to go with that. And I was speaking to a mutual friend who knows him and who obviously I know. And he knew about this massive trial. And this unbeliever looked at me and said, how can you believe in God when this kind of stuff happens? And my response was, how can you not? Friends, because there is a God in heaven who, in his great love for fallen men, in their sinful and broken estate, did not relent from plunging the dagger into his son. You know, everybody's favorite, you know, the favorite verse in the world, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we just kind of move on from there. What does it mean that he gave his only begotten son? He gave his only begotten son, and you, you recognize the verbiage, right? He's referring to Jesus the same way God is referring to Isaac, your son, your only son, your only begotten son. But that story does not contain these words. The story of Christ do not contain the words, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. That, that is not heard. The dagger goes down. There was no ram who took the place of Christ on that cross. It is Christ who takes the place of us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that in a challenging story such as this, we would recognize your true sovereignty, the magnitude of your love the, the depth of sacrifice in sending your own son and, and laying upon him the wrath that we all deserved. So we do pray, Father, that truly we would, we would seek to have such a high view of you that the story of Abraham would make sense to us. We would recognize it as the beautiful thing that it is. 
But I pray that in all of this, it would just draw us ever closer to you and the great gifts found in your name. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.